What do we do with the members of a society who don't fit, whose behaviors, emotions, and mental capacities fall outside the range of what is considered normal? The history of civilization's relationship with mental illness is a troubling one. For centuries, humans have grappled with the question of which spaces we will allow our citizens with disabilities to occupy. From prisons, to resort-like hospitals, to community care centers, to cemeteries. As our understanding of mental health and treatment of various conditions have evolved, perhaps one constant underlying everything is the fact of human bodies occupying space while the mind within struggles to function effectively in society. This is Kirsten Olson, and I'd like to invite you to join me on a virtual tour of places in Utah where the struggle between mental illness and social norms have played out. We'll visit sites in Salt Lake City and Provo and examine how these urban spaces have changed over the past 140 years according to the needs and values of the people who used them. We'll begin in 1880 with a territorial legislature confronted by escalating immigration and its inevitable additions to the population of people with intellectual and emotional disabilities. Our first stop is the Old City Hall or Council Hall, where the Territorial Legislature met on February 12, 1880, to vote on building what would become the Utah State Hospital. The Joint Committee reported that it is the unanimous opinion of this committee that the Territory should provide a suitable place for the safekeeping of insane persons, and also to provide for their care and comfort as far as possible. Several other significant decisions were made here, including the establishment of free public schools, appropriating funds for the First University of Utah buildings, and granting women suffrage. In 1961, the city moved the building from its original location at 120 East, 100 South, to make room for the Wallace F. Bennett Federal Building. They deconstructed Old City Hall stone by stone and rebuilt it across the street from the Utah State Capitol Building. It was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1975. Old City Hall currently houses the Utah Office of Tourism and Utah Film Commission, as well as a small gift shop and information center. The historic red sandstone building sits proudly on the corner of 300 North and State Street, surrounded by a manicured lawn and decorative landscaping. During working hours, especially in the middle of tourist season, the small adjacent parking lot and diagonal parking spaces in front see a lot of activity. At rush hour, the traffic on both intersecting roads grows dense, with state employees driving to or from work. And yet it also manages to give the impression of being part of an old genteel neighborhood, surrounded as it is by the avenues, one of Salt Lake City's oldest residential areas. You may see locals out walking their dogs or going for a run between home and the nearby Memory Grove Park. Old City Hall has always been and continues to be a place of government, central to both the functioning of and flow of people within the state of Utah. It would be impossible to count the number of decisions made within its walls, let alone the people impacted by those decisions. But in 1880, on February 12th, one momentous vote changed the lives of thousands of people the government judged to be in need of the state's care and safekeeping. In another five years, Utah would have a place set aside for that purpose. 
As you drive east on Provost Center Street, the picturesque blend of historic and modern shops, restaurants, and office building gradually gives way to residential neighborhoods. The road narrows from four lanes to two, the median disappears, and eventually you pass an apple orchard and a sign welcoming you to Utah State Hospital. On the other side of a broad lawn, you come to the end of the road, a modern one-story building of brown brick housing the hospital's administrative offices. This building has only been here since 1994. The first hospital opened in 1885, resembled an aristocrat's country manor, a tall, stately central block with wings extending north and south, constructed of sandstone and pressed brick. You've probably seen buildings like it elsewhere in the country, or even in horror films. In the late 19th century, the prevailing opinion among psychiatrists, called alienists at the time, called for the natural cure, sending their patients to beautiful living spaces in peaceful, attractive surroundings, a lot like a modern spa. Most states in the Union built hospitals or asylums modeled after the Kirkbride plan, like this one. Dr. Thomas Kirkbride published an architectural design in 1854 that he believed would maximize patients' well-being and be easy to expand when needed. Doctors and other hospital staff lived in the building with the patients. But by the early 20th century, it became clear that this design was inadequate. Staff needed their own quarters, and patients had a wide variety of conditions and needs that made keeping them all together difficult and sometimes dangerous. Utah State Hospital adopted the Cottage Plan in 1902, adding several smaller buildings to the campus to separate patients, house staff, and provide recreational spaces. In 1934, the original building was extensively renovated. The 1931 films Dracula and Frankenstein brought new meaning to immense castle-like buildings, and the administration wanted to reduce the stigma now associated with what was once considered handsome and stately. As the years passed, the structure decayed and the patient population increased. Every hospital in the nation suffered from overcrowding and staff shortages. Most resorted to converting offices, recreation halls, and other spaces into sleeping quarters, stacking them several beds deep. Some were even forced to set up beds in the hallways of the hospital. The crowding and complete lack of privacy increased the stress on patients and staff alike, and sanitation became a serious problem. The overworked staff often restrained patients simply because they didn't have time to deal with them. The Utah hospital's population peaked at about 1,500 in 1955, the early days of the anti-psychiatry movement. Conditions at state hospitals captured the attention of civil rights activists, and the movement gained momentum through the 50s and 60s. In 1962, Ken Kesey published One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a novel about patients in a decrepit, overcrowded hospital, abused by a domineering nurse. The novel and the 1975 movie directed by Michael Douglas raised national awareness significantly, and the old state psychiatric hospital model collapsed quickly after that. Community care centers appeared in the 1950s and 60s, and in the 70s they took over most treatment programs. In 1971, the old Utah State Hospital building was declared a fire hazard, and it was demolished in 1976. 
Like all state hospitals in the present day, the building that now sits at the east end of Center Street treats a small number of extreme cases that require high security and 24-hour care. Large grounds and peaceful surroundings seem to be as important as they were in the late 19th century. The state has preserved most of the hospital's original property and its well-maintained lawns and nearness to the mountains, not to mention its distance from the bustle of the city, make it an inviting place. There is a limited degree of community outreach, and local musical groups perform from time to time at the main administration building. The Castle Amphitheater, a historic stone structure built as part of the New Deal Public Works program, is a popular place for professional photographs and social gatherings. It sits on the mountain just a little above the hospital. Our next stop is another New Deal building on the hospital grounds which now serves as a museum of mental health. The museum began its life as the hospital superintendent's residence. Works Progress Administration employees built it in 1934, using materials salvaged from the Dracula and Frankenstein-inspired renovation of the main administration building. When transportation became more available, and superintendents found their own homes in Provo's residential areas, the home was repurposed as office space. When those offices moved to new facilities a few years ago, hospital historian Janine Chilton proposed converting the home into a museum documenting the hospital's past. The museum opened in 2017, displaying historic photographs of hospital patients and artifacts from the old building. The exhibit includes chairs, beds, clothing, machinery used for diagnosis and treatment, and items manufactured by patients as part of the work therapy that was a prominent part of treatment as late as the 1950s. But the most riveting part of the exhibit is the various forms of restraint. Straight jackets, leather cuffs, chains, and bed sheets designed to be fastened to the bed frame. Most of these were manufactured by the patients. You'll also see an Oregon boot, an early type of ankle monitor, which was heavy and designed to make walking difficult. Escape was a common occurrence at these hospitals, especially among the inmates committed by judges who condemned them as criminally insane. The museum also features a Utica crib, an adult-sized bed with bars and a lid intended to calm restless patients and prevent them from roaming the hospital at night. Chilton says of this exhibit, even though some of the things seen here are horrifying by today's standards, we can't forget the past. This courageous exhibit hides nothing, but it interprets everything with compassion for doctors and staff who, for the most part, did the best they could with the knowledge and resources they had at the time. The former superintendent's home has lived the hospital's past, constructed from materials first used in the 1885 building offering employment during the Great Depression, serving as a home for several hospital superintendents, providing office space for administrators, and now telling the hospital's story. It stands almost on the edge of the property, inviting the public to come and look. This is a far cry from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when mental illness inspired fear and shame and expansive hospital grounds were often as much a way of separating the hospital from the community as providing a cure. 
In Provo, not looking went a step further. Swampland and the municipal dump lay between the city and the hospital. Next, we'll visit the park that now occupies the site of that dump. Provo Memorial Park is a 6.6-acre park at 800 East Center Street. The dump was plowed under in the early 20th century and repurposed as a memorial to local servicemen and women. When it was first created, it boasted a pond, tennis court, and flower beds remarkable enough to be included in the 1936 issue of National Geographic. Those features are gone now, but the park remains an attractive place with picnic tables, a walking path, a playground, and a 58-foot-tall obelisk commemorating the service of Utah's veterans. The park is surrounded by mid-20th century homes, many of which are probably built on either the plowed under dump or the drained swampland. These acres have served Provo in opposing ways, first as a place for civilization to dispose of its detritus, and perhaps as a convenient blockade between that civilization and the individuals it had rejected, then as building lots for an expanding city and a park to honor military service in multiple wars. With some engineering, the city erased an unsightly stinking barrier and enabled homes and businesses to move closer to the once isolated hospital. Whether that was part of their intention or not, it has certainly been the result. Of all the stops on this tour, This park demonstrates most clearly how far we've come in learning how to treat individuals dealing with mental illness and integrate them into our communities. Our final stop is Provo City Pioneer Cemetery, the resting place of hundreds of Utah State Hospital patients. More than 500 people died at Utah State Hospital between 1885 and 1960. 474 of them were buried at this cemetery in unmarked graves. These were the patients whose relatives never came to claim their bodies for burial in family plots. Every state mental hospital has carried this burden of what to do with the deceased who were abandoned in death as much as in life. In 2004, Oregon legislators and hospital administrators discovered thousands of copper canisters housing the cremated remains of forgotten patients. The canisters had been exposed to water several years earlier, and the corrosion of the metal and the chemical reactions with the ashes produced spectacular colors on the urns. Journalists and photographers publicized the story throughout the country, prompting national interest in discovering and memorializing these and thousands of other forgotten individuals. In October 2018, the Utah State Hospital Forgotten Patients Cemetery Project completed a virtual cemetery online as well as a physical monument in Provo City Cemetery. This is still an active cemetery, beautifully maintained, shaded by old trees and separated from State Street and the rest of the city by a wrought iron fence. You can hear birdsong as well as traffic, and many of the graves are decorated with flowers, balloons, and other tributes. The Forgotten Patients Monument is a solemn place, with benches where visitors can sit and read the patients' names. The virtual cemetery at findagrave.com provides information gathered on each patient from descendants and researchers, as well as the location of their graves. 
The cemetery may once have been a place to dispose of and forget the unclaimed remains of Utah State Hospital patients, but now it is a place to remember and honor them. Public spaces are where our society lives out its values, expresses what is important, what is unimportant, and what we do and don't want to be aware of. As we've seen on this tour, spaces that served to express one thing a hundred years ago can be reorganized to express something else in the present day, sometimes in direct response to a past system of values that contradicts our current social morality. The long story of treating members of our communities who have mental illnesses is a troubled one of ignorance and isolation, caretaking and warehousing, hiding and then bringing out of obscurity. The purpose of this tour has been to encourage you to think more deeply about how our predecessors used these spaces in changing ways to answer the question of what to do about their troubled neighbors, and how we use it now to produce our own answers to this challenge. Thank you for joining me.